Let's take our New Testaments and turn to the little letter to Titus. And we'll begin our study tonight officially looking at uh, the contents of this letter. And we are absolutely blessed tonight to have Abigail and Mabel and Claire Lundy with us. They are a special guest here in the service. And unfortunately, ladies, there's no good food and no cool games coming tonight. So I just want you to know up front, Mr. and Mrs. Bartell would be willing to play dodgeball with you, but we don't have the, the means for them to do that. So hope you guys can hold together and, uh, and enjoy your time with us this evening. We are honored to have you. Alrighty, let's read together, <laughs> just to start, a very kid-friendly service. We're going to read the letter of Titus tonight, and uh, I'm sure David reads them long sections like this, but we're going to read together these, I believe, 46 verses, and uh, only take us a few minutes to read through it. You can follow as I read in our beginning tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the very Word of God preserved for us. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself to us to redeem us from our lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, Hatred by others and hating one another. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. When I I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus. Now, by way of introduction this evening to our study of this letter, I want to focus our attention on just the first four verses of Titus chapter 1. And these four verses will, I trust, produce for us a confidence and an expectation of the good things that God has planned for us in our study of this letter. You know, growing up, I was, um, not, I was not a passive rebel in my home. I was an unbeliever, and I was an aggressive rebel against my authorities. And in particular, um, most of that aggression was channeled towards my parents. And in particular, it was channeled towards my mom. I remember specifically on several occasions, I'm sure I've wiped many of them from my memory, Uh, other occasions, but I remember on a few occasions my dad being present when I uh, verbalized my disrespect and my disregard for the authority of my mom. Maybe I completely ignored her words to me or I responded with words of my own that were absolutely inappropriate. What should have been there in my tone and in my choice of words was absent. And I can remember my dad asking me, a rhetorical question. 
Maybe you've asked this question or you have been asked this question, but who do you think you are talking to? I remember one time he asked me that question and then he answered the question. He said, I'll tell you who you're talking to. You're talking to my wife. That's who you're talking to. And she happens to be your mother as well. But he would ask me, who do you think you're talking to? And obviously, I didn't think I was talking to anybody but my mom. I mean, I was aware that this was my mom. And yet, he asked me the question because the role of my mom in my life should have had some effect on my responses to her. Right? Who she was, because of what God had ordained in my life, what He had placed over me, should have had an effect on my attitude, on my words, on my affection for my mom. And by God's grace, He has radically transformed my heart and has built that love and affection and respect for my mom. But those questions were asked for a very specific point to be made. And that was because she bears the title of mom. There are necessities for your attitude and your actions. Period. No questions asked. I don't care if you like it or not, you will not, as long as you live under this roof, son, you will not respond that way to your mom. Those were appropriate um, rebukes for me. And they were meaningful rebukes for me. And they, they inform my thinking even as we come to this introductory section. Now, there is no reason to believe that Titus in any way struggled with respect for the Apostle Paul. But Paul uses this opening paragraph, this introduction, to lay the groundwork to say what I am and who I am as I write this letter to you, Titus, ought to have an effect upon your response and your attitude and your expectations of this letter. The Apostle Paul does not waste words. Every single time he penned under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he is giving us an inspired word that is profitable for our instruction. And maybe you, like me, have come to these introductory sections, you've read these introductory paragraphs, and you've breezed so quickly past these, and maybe it has crossed your mind once or twice, how am I supposed to apply an introduction or a conclusion to my life? I hope that tonight we'll see that the Apostle Paul, because of his role, because of his title, because of his calling by God, demands in us an attitude and expectation as we approach his letter. That's exactly what the Spirit intends for us as he preserved this paragraph for us this evening. And I hope it will place um, a heavy weight of awareness on you that we are interacting with the apostolic word tonight, inspired by God, preserved for our benefit. We're going to see four designations about the Apostle Paul or concerning the Apostle Paul this evening in this text. And let me just tell you ahead of time what they are. First of all, we're going to see the Apostle's introduction. He is going to introduce himself, and he does that in almost every letter. He's going to introduce himself, and we're going to see the Apostle's introduction. Secondly, we're going to see the Apostle's purpose. He's actually going to tell us why why he does what he does and why he's even writing this letter Secondly, or thirdly rather, we'll see the Apostle's confidence as he describes the God that he serves. And then we'll see the Apostle's target finally in verse 4, which is none other than Titus. And we'll see his words of greeting and the launch, really, in verse 4 of the remainder of the letter. Let's begin then by rereading verses 1 through 4 and just setting our minds 
and, and, and focus here on this paragraph. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, or my genuine child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So let's jump right in here and let's see, first of all, in verse 1, the Apostles' introduction. This is not mystery to us. This is not difficult to us. But I want to reference this. Paul comments on his own status, his own understanding of who he is. And he gives us two descriptors, two little phrases that help us understand what he believed about himself and what was true about him as he wrote this letter to young Titus there on Crete. The first one is probably the most shocking. Paul calls himself a slave. He calls himself a slave. He is a slave. He is a bondservant of God. Paul sees himself as having no rights in and of him himself. He, he doesn't have any claim on his life. He's just a slave of God. Whatever God demands, he does. The word here is a powerful word. It, it's the, the idea here is that God bought Paul. He purchased him. He chose him, and he, and he picked him, and he paid for him. And because God bought him, because he purchased him, Paul viewed himself as nothing but a slave of God. This is a powerful theological idea for us. The apostle was well acquainted with the concept of being a, a slave, a doulos of Christ. Yet I don't know that we think of ourselves in those same terms. Paul was a slave. He was purchased by God, and he existed for God. Period. He goes on to describe that same relationship of being bought by God and being a slave of God with that second descriptive term, he says, an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul here defines for us a very important and specific office within the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 11 and 12 tell us that God gave to the church apostles. There was a very specific group of men who were called out and set apart for this role as those who would be messengers for Christ. Now the word apostle is a common word and it simply means that. It's a spokesperson, it's a messenger, it's a herald for Christ. And yet if, if we could, we would put a capital A on this word apostle, because it is not a general sense that Paul says, I'm a messenger for Christ, though no doubt that is all that he existed to do, and he's about to tell us that. But he here classifies himself with 11 other individuals who were all present in the life of Christ. There would have been 12, except Judas departed from the Lord without belief, as John 6 tells us. And so there are 11 apostles plus the apostle born out of time, as Paul called himself. And so this is the apostle's introduction. Humility here is obvious, and it meets the clear and confident calling of Paul. Paul was nothing but a slave, and yet he understood that his office 
his calling was very specific. He was a slave who also was a designated spokesperson for Jesus Christ himself. Okay, So that's the introduction. That's who we're going to be reading as we read this letter. And that should have an effect on us. And it should have had an effect, and no doubt it did have an effect, on Titus and on all the believers there at Crete. As they were aware now, this was not just any letter. This wasn't a helpful moral letter. This wasn't a good guideline. This was an apostolic letter written by Paul himself. Secondly, Paul goes on in verse, at the second part of verse number 1 and into verse 2, and he gives us his purpose, the apostle's purpose. He goes on to say in the second half of verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of, or according to, the old King James used according to, I believe, and I think the ESV has given us a very helpful translation because it has helped us understand the weight of what Paul is saying here. Paul's apostolic purpose in writing this letter and in ministering in every way that he ministered was for the sake of or for the benefit of God's people. Say, why did Paul do what he did? He did it all for the sake or for the benefit of, for the development of others. Paul existed and lived and ministered under God's authority as a slave, an apostle, and he existed and he lived and he ministered for the benefit of others. And Paul is the picture of selfless service. And he describes that here in his apostolic purpose. He says that he serves, he writes this letter, he exists for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope, of eternal life. And so I think we see here three key components that Paul was concerned about as as he pursued this benefit for God's elect. We see their faith, their knowledge, and their hope outlined for us in verses 1 and 2. He begins by saying that he ministers for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul ministered with the goal of increasing and strengthening the faith of God's people. You understand that there is, in one sense, an equality in our faith. If, in fact, we have a saving faith, a faith that was born by the Word of God, James 1.18, a faith that has brought justification, that is a, a God-granted faith, there is a unity, there's an equality in that faith. And yet, Jesus, in His ministry, and the remainder of our New Testament affirms His words, but in His ministry, He often referenced less or more faith. Right? There are levels of faith. There are deepening and stronger faiths, and there are weaker and shallower faiths. And here Paul ministers and he gives himself for the sake of developing the faith of God's people. At the base level, it's equal. And yet Paul gave himself for the development, for the, the production of faith in God's elect. Now, it's a careful term that he uses there, and we'd be foolish to miss it. There in verse 1, he calls God's people God's chosen ones. That's what elect means. That is the the underlying term there is just chosen. God's chosen, his chosen ones, his elect people. And this concept is not foreign to your New Testaments, and I trust it is not foreign to you. 
In fact, he's used this same term back just a couple of pages in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, this same idea, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. Paul was convinced that the people of God were selected by God. That is their classification. They are handpicked by God. They are chosen, not of their own merit, but according to His wisdom. You say, where else do we see this? Well, Nowhere do we see this more potently than in Ephesians chapter 1. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, you can watch along as we read. I trust these are familiar verses to you. These are the very words that God used to impress upon my heart His sovereign choice in my own salvation and to um, rework my first impression of my salvation. Verse 3 begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, glory be to God for what He's done. Now verse 4 goes on to explain that. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Alright, before God created anything, before there was time, space, before there was anything to grasp, God had selected a people for Himself. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Here are some of the most potent verses describing this term that Paul uses in Titus 1.1. We are God's elect. We are the ones that God has chosen according to His own will, to the glory of His grace. So that God would be put on display as a forgiving and gracious God. So that in eternity past, in His wisdom, He chose to set apart a people to be adopted through Christ. To be blameless and holy, to be presented as a spotless bride, as Ephesians 5 describes for us. These are God's elect. And if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Christ, and you've given your life to Christ, you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, you have done so not because you first loved Him, but because He first loved you. You have done so not because you first chose Him, but because He first chose you. And the Apostle Paul calls you God's elect, and he calls me, and he called Titus and the believers at Crete, God's elect. John chapter 6 In the words of our own Savior, Jesus here describes this same reality. And John chapter 6 is another passage that ought to be very familiar to you on this subject. He says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. That is past tense. He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him 
should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does John 6 communicate? Jesus there teaches that he came to accomplish the before the foundation of the world wisdom and will of the Father. The Father had selected a people for himself. He had given them as a love gift to the Son, and the Son came to secure that gift by his own death. That is the mystery of the Gospel. We are God's elect. And it was the faith, and it is the faith of God's elect, for which the Apostle Paul wrote and, and the Holy Spirit preserved this letter to Titus. Paul did not operate under his own authority, and he did not operate with his own agenda. He was serving others. He ministered as an apostle for the sake of God's elect, their faith. And then secondly, he goes on and describes a second aspect for which he served, and that was their knowledge of the truth. We find that there at the last part of verse 1. Not only is he concerned with their development in their faith, that is their hope in what is not seen, their confidence in what they cannot grasp, as Hebrews 11.1 tells us, but he is also equally concerned with their knowledge. Paul ministered, Paul wrote, Paul preached, Paul served for the sake of developing both the faith of God's people and the doctrine, the theology, the knowledge of God's people. Now today, it's common to hear people say that uh, we need to get away from all the heavy doctrine. We need to get away from theology. We need to get away from thinking and instruction and propositional truth. And, and Paul knew nothing of that. He knew nothing of that agenda. He knew only that he existed to see the faith of God's people strengthened and to see their knowledge deepened. This is why he served. This is why we have this letter. And we should respond differently to this letter because we know these things about the apostolic purpose. He's the servant of God. He's the apostle of Jesus. And he ministers for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of God's elect. And he finishes that description of that knowledge with the theme that we discussed last week, which accords with godliness. Right? Paul did not know any theology that did not affect life. He didn't know any work in the head that didn't show itself in the feet. This is a theme throughout this letter. This is a theme throughout the writing of the Apostle Paul, period, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Paul was concerned with a knowledge that affected life, that affected and produced godliness. Knowledge that was devoid of a loving, active expression would simply produce a puffing up. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us. So the Apostle Paul was concerned with the faith of God's chosen people and the knowledge in the truth of God's chosen people which was fleshed out in godliness. So that they began to mirror the very character of God Himself. And he concludes then with the first little phrase of verse 2, in hope of eternal life. And this is the final aspect that Paul is concerned about within the elect people, within God's chosen people, within the Christian community to which he wrote and which he served and ministered. He was concerned about their faith, he was concerned about their knowledge, and he was concerned about their hope their resolute steadfastness in the future of what was to come, their confidence in what was stated as true, 
which they had placed their faith in and which they knew about. He was concerned that the believers exist in hope of eternal life. That is a future eternal life. He's talking here in the future sense. There is a reality present for us in eternal life. We do enjoy the knowledge and understanding that we will not die. We will spend our eternity in the presence of Christ, but we have not yet experienced that. And so we live now in the hope, the confident expectation of what will come. All right, these are the three priorities. These are the three purposes for which the Apostle Paul ministered. So we've seen the Apostle's introduction. We've seen his purpose. And now let's turn our attention, thirdly, to his confidence in verses 2 and 3. Paul communicates his confidence with just a little description after the eternal life. If you notice in your translation, you should have a comma and then which God. And here Paul turns on a pivot and he now turns his attention to the very God whom he serves as a slave. And he describes his confidence, that is, God himself. All right, here is Paul's consuming awareness of the divine reality in his life. It is God who is doing this work, and he focuses our attention as that is his confidence. Now, what do we notice about God that produces within Paul's ministry a confident a confident life of service? Well, we see a few phrases that help describe our God. He never lies. Paul says, which God, who never lies promised before the ages began, referring back to the hope of eternal life, God promised that eternal life which the believers, the elect, live in hope of. Who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested. So we see here we have three other realities, and these all make up the confidence of the Apostle Paul. He is consumed with this message. He is consumed with his ministry because he is convinced He's confident that it's God who's doing the work. He's confident that God has a plan and that the Apostle Paul's ministry fits within that plan, very specifically. And he makes sure to allow Titus to digest that idea and as well we indirectly have the opportunity to respond rightly because of what God was doing in and through the Apostle Paul in his master plan. First of all, God never lies. Why is Paul confident that there is eternal life and that the believers must be strengthened in their hope of that eternal life? Because God does not lie. Folks, tonight, if you're one of God's chosen people, if you are a follower of Christ, understand that you ought to be bolstered in your confidence because your God does not lie. What you see on the pages of your scriptures, the promises that you receive, from his word are true and he will he will come through on his promises we studied matthew chapter 7 this morning and we saw a number of direct promises to us you do not have a god who lies and paul was confident of this fact it bolstered him in his ministry there is no lying to be found in god he says the same thing in the same context in second timothy that we just read a moment ago Chapter 2 and verse 13, it's really back in verse 11. He says the saying is trustworthy, verse 11. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Verse 13 says, 
for he cannot deny himself. God cannot speak against his own character. He cannot say one thing and do the opposite of what he has said. He cannot lie. This is an impossibility. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 communicate the same truth. 1 Samuel 15 verse 29. And then my favorite probably of all of these passages, and they are countless speaking of God's truthfulness and his character. My favorite is Hebrews chapter 6. Flip over just a few pages to your right. If you're in Titus, you'll find Hebrews chapter 6 just a few pages over. And let's read together beginning in verse 13. The author of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two, <clears throat> by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Understand what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's using the historical reality of the promise of God to Abraham, and when God promised Abraham that he would bless him, that he would produce a seed that would bless the nations, He promised on his own character. There was no one greater to promise upon. He could not promise on his grandmother's grave. He could not promise on his father's honor. There was was no one greater. So God, God promised on himself. His own character was at stake. And he did that because in not being able to lie, we gain confidence and we hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Verse 19 is such a familiar verse that has been turned to song. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The gospel and our holding fast to the hope of the gospel is grounded in the the truthfulness of God to his promises. Okay? This is the Apostle's confidence. God never lies. He goes on to say that not only does God not lie, He has been at work accomplishing and fulfilling His promise from before time began. He says He never lied and He promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word. Right? So the Apostle Paul paints this picture. First of all, the character of God ought to establish the hope of God's people, and it is the confidence of the Apostle himself. God doesn't lie. Secondly, God established this promise before we were existing, before there was anything existing. He established this promise in eternity past. He promised this to the Son that he would in fact bring reconciliation, that the gospel would be accomplished, that a people would be set aside, as Ephesians 1, 4 already communicated to us this evening. And then at the proper time, verse 3 begins, he manifested it in his word. Not only is the apostle's confidence found in the character of God 
or in the past tense promise of God based upon that character, but in the present manifestation of that promise being lived out through the Word of God. And notice the Apostle's words in verse 3. At the proper time, at the, at the right moment, God manifested in His Word, how? Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Do you notice what Paul is saying here? Folks, this is not a wasted word. He's saying that God's promise of the Gospel is established upon His character. He doesn't lie. It is established in eternity past by His promise, and it is now manifest in His preaching, in His declaration of the Word of God. He is a spokesman for the eternal promise of God. He's an apostle. He is a messenger for the eternal promise of God to the Son. He has a very clear identity. He has a very clear purpose. And he is very clear in his confidence. This preaching that Paul accomplishes, this message, this proclamation of the gospel is something that he views as a stewardship with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It is entrusted to me. I'm a steward of the gospel and I'm an obedient slave. I've been commanded by God to communicate this message. These are the elements that produce the confidence of the Apostle Paul. And these are presented to us this evening and to Titus and to the readers of this at Crete so long ago. These are presented for us so that our expectation and our anticipation of what will go on in this letter is established firmly upon the apostolic authority. We are to come to this letter anticipating a moment with God under the inspiration of the Apostle's writing. We are to come to this as authoritative for us. We are to come to Titus expecting to see our lives changed because we have interacted with this Word. We are to come to this in submission. I'm to come to this letter. David is to come to this letter as we study and prepare with a humble recognition that we are not interacting with just the words on a page from somebody. We are interacting with the living Word of God delivered by the Apostle. That's why he gives us this introduction. We can benefit from the apostolic ministry as we are aware of the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the apostolic word in the letter to Titus. This is our good at stake. Paul has our growth. He has us in mind as part of God's elect. Finally then, we see in verse 4, the most simple, and yet I think we find profound truths here, the most simple of our four designations. We see the apostles introduction in verse 1 we see the apostles purpose in verses 1 and 2 we see the apostles confidence in verses 2 and 3 and then in verse 4 we find the apostles target i mean who is he writing to or the recipient of this apostolic word directly he says to titus okay we know about titus we talked about him last week and he references titus he identifies him as his true child in a common faith now let me just point out just a couple of things for for your benefit, I trust tonight. 
Number one, it is not by accident that Paul calls it a common faith. A common faith. That is, we share this faith in common, Titus. Now, why would Paul reference the faith of Titus as being common to his own? Is there a distinction between Titus and Paul that would make Paul here in this moment seem, it would seem to Paul to be important to reference that this is not a different faith, it is a common faith. What's the distinction between Paul and Titus that, that the apostle is referencing here? Anybody? Do you remember anything about Titus? Okay, father, son, sure, there's no doubt about it that they share because of their relationship as a true child in the common faith. I mean, he is the spiritual son of Paul. But there's a distinction between these two that Paul is referencing here, and, 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 and it is this. Titus is a Greek, and Paul is a Jew. And Paul is backing up once again that the gospel, the mystery that has not been revealed to this point, is that there is no longer Jew and Gentile. The gospel has come and it is a common faith. All those who believe, all those who are set apart, chosen by God, are common. They are together in their faith. And so he references his target, Titus, as his child, which is what Carol pointed out. And with that child, he shares a common faith, Jew and Gentile. And then Paul turns and gives his target, his common greeting, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, I don't know if you've ever known this, but Paul is taking a very common Jewish phrase, a Jewish greeting, and he's making it Christian. He's turning the common greeting of shalom, uh, which a Jew would give, just like we say, how are you? We really don't, we really, most of the time we don't care how you are. Um, we have to ask another question for you to really think we care how you are. Like, how did this week go? Or how did yesterday take off with the party? Or whatever it is that we have to ask. But we say, hey, how are you? Or have a great day. And none of us think twice about that. Similarly, within Jewish culture, the, to say peace to each other was just a general greeting. The Apostle Paul took that general greeting and he, he Christianized it. Because Paul is not talking about a superficial peace. He's not hoping that you have a good day. He is speaking to Titus and he is speaking specifically about deep and weighty theological truths. Grace and peace. Unmerited, unsolicited, unearned favor from God, blessing from God, which is, is wrapped up in the concept of grace we are without merit, and yet God showers us with His blessing. That is grace and peace is the Romans 5, 1 through 11 concept of peace. That is justification. The war is ended with God. We are now at peace. A treaty has been signed in the blood of Christ. And so He greets Him. Grace and peace. And this grace and this kind of peace can only come from one source. The Apostle Paul is always, always consumed with the desperate need of the believer for God to work. And here he references his target, Titus, his child. They share a faith that is common to Jew and Gentile. And now he prays grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The Apostle here designates 
and divides these two. And I don't know if you caught this while we were reading, but he uses some um, interchangeable uh, titles for Christ and for God. Here he designates between God the Father and Jesus, and he references Jesus as the Christ, that is the Messiah, and our Savior, the one who is provided for our salvation. Here then is the source. It is a heavenly source for this simple greeting, grace and peace. This is the introduction. Okay? And this ought to establish your anticipation. You ought to come to this letter. Titus was supposed to read this letter differently because of verses 1 through 4. We ought to read it and study it differently because it is not coming to us on some whimsical authority. It is coming to us from the servant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ. It is coming to us from the one whose purpose was to establish the faith of God's elect to strengthen the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness, and to further establish the hope of eternal life. As it comes to us with one who is, who is marked by confidence that it's, it's God who promised beforehand and who is now manifested in His preaching the promise, the Gospel. He targets Titus and indirectly He targets us and He ministers to us as the messenger for our Lord Jesus Himself. We have an apostolic word. As we start into verse 5 next week, David will be teaching us, we are interacting with a word from God, given from His servant for our good, ultimately for the glory of our God. Okay? So come to this differently, and I trust that helps you as you come to introductions, because we can study them, we can glean from them, as we understand them properly within their context, they help us And they establish within us the right mindset as we come to a letter.